Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, People who were influential in, in time weren't always fully aware of the facts. So today there's a lot of question about what's objectively true. Is there anything any longer called objective truth? And the philosophers will say, of course, there is. There's always a shadow on the cave wall if you go back to that philosophical argument. And we need to get at the truth about leadership, for instance, or about management, for instance, or about our futures. And then others will swing the other side of the pendulum and they'll say, you know, it's all subjective. My truth is unknowable and and undescribable to anybody else. So I'll try to influence as many people as I can. Look at the number of followers I have. <laughs> yeah, that that's so true. You could you hit the nail on the head, and it it has its own um, negative connotation with that because then it becomes more about getting the followers as opposed to the impact. Depending on, I think we just have to remind ourselves of that of what we're doing here. Um, so let's okay. bring it back to OKRs. Um, in, in the OKR world, if you're in a larger organization and your objectives are well known, for instance, at, at Google, if uh, you want to have a, a meeting with the CEO and his OKRs are not um, consistent with yours, you will not impose a 30-minute meeting on the guy. Why would you? It'd be wrong to impose your OKRs on that person because the business needs to define X. Same story with a family. If the if the generation two leaders are looking at succession planning for generation three or four, and generation two wants X to happen by a certain date so they can have enough assets maybe to transfer to generations three and four. Gotcha. You have to be really clear about those. Well, that's a, a objective truth in time. It might change. But one of the values of OKRs is to state, here's where we are today. Here's where we need to go next. How you day? How you day? This is the last episode of 2019. And I wanted to leave you all with an episode that got you thinking about ways to set up your goals and your objectives. You know, many of you are going to be wondering what to do with your 2020 vision. And you're going to be wondering how to do that in your companies. You're going to be wondering how to do that in your families. And you're going to be wondering how to do that within yourselves. So Doug here, he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher with his experience on this. He talks about how to do this on a generational level, how to do this in a workplace and how to really get the most out of people that you serve. So I hope you take it with a grain of salt, help you pass it on to people that you feel like this could be beneficial to. And I just hope that we go into this new decade feeling and being the best versions of ourselves. Happy New Year and talk to you soon. Enjoy.
Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads and today's episode is with Dr. Gray. What we're going to be doing and talking and discussing today is what exactly OKR leadership is and don't worry we'll dive into that we'll define what that term is but we're going to be talking about how to apply Silicon Valley's secret sauce to your career your team and your organization. Doug, Dr. Gray, having worked with over 10,000 leaders for more than two decades, is recognized as someone who is an expert in this field. And he also is recognized that there's a need for outcome-based leadership development that could actually deliver quantifiable results. Now, we're talking about quantifiable results. This is usually the secret sauce in any company. But in his book, OKR Leadership, it reveals just the best, just uh, in incredible ways for you to actually boost your employee engagement, motivate new generations of managers. And he does so in an easily digestible and action-oriented way. Very, very excited to talk about all these things on the podcast and also learn about his career. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gray. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Pleasure is mine. So, Doug, Yes. What exactly is OKR leadership? <laughs> right. So um, there may be folks in your podcast world who are familiar with uh, the technological innovations in Silicon Valley in the last 50 years. And they might know of OKRs because they tend to be early adopters. So the O stands for objectives. The KRs stand for key results. And you can think of it as uh, a sandwich. So you need to know your objectives, for instance, in 2020, and then your measures. What are the key results that are going to help you get there? Here we are. It's December. It's Q4. So a lot of folks are mindful of what's the new year, the new you, the new perspective that you need to uh, make real. Goal setting typically doesn't work unless we have measures and we have accountability and support. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And while going through your book, I remember you have a worksheet. Is that correct? I do. There's a lot of information there. A friend of mine said I gave away too much content. I said, come on. <laughs> no, but I, I love it because you're saying, you know, objectives and, and these things. But the reason I'm asking this is because when we go into companies and companies are figuring out to lead millennials, Gen Z, even Generation Alpha, which is coming after, or even figuring out how to work with five generations in the workplace. It's very hard to communicate these objectives in a way that is digestible. And with your experience, you said you have, you know, it's definitely two decades. So you've seen how the generations have transitioned, you know, whether it's boomer, X, millennials. What exactly about millennials, my generation, uh, is, is, is needed in terms of that, I guess, accountability? Why do we demand that from managers and leaders so much? Yeah, there's a bunch of reasons, um, and you're mindful. You're making me mindful of our girls who are in their 20s. But I think the short answer <laughs> is, we all need agency, which is a nerdy psychological term, but it means uh, the capacity to believe that you've got control over your future. And millennials, in particular, are argumentative sometimes about that demand for social impact or to be heard. Not a hard thing if you're listening well. But I'll tell you, as a leader and a manager and a consultant who's worked with a whole bunch of folks in different ages, that's a hard skill. The silence between our conversation right now mm -hmm. it is important. And I learned this when I lived in Washington, Washington D.C. And for nine years, I ran a nonprofit at a Quaker school. And you may know that Quakers are very comfortable with silence. Yes. Yes. So millennials yeah. are <laughs> no, I, I, I went. I went to. I went to uh, basically Christian institutions from 
uh, elementary school to, to actually university. So yeah. <laughs> I'm very familiar with Quakers and different uh, different factors. But yeah, silence is, is a key component of that, for sure. And that was formative for me. Um, as I've aged, it's critical to be able to vary our uh, awareness of what the audience needs and also uh, how we respond. And, and OKRs are um, just one tool, one tactic, one approach. And to be clear, yeah. this has been around for a long time. It started in Silicon Valley with Andy Grove at Intel. And, um, and for over 50 years, they've worked with lots of different generations. Yeah. And I think one reason is that the tech folks are a lot like the millennials you just described. They want agency. They want control. They don't want to be told what to do sometimes. And after all, this was in California. So it was a reaction against Wall Street investors and venture capitalism in the 70s. And they were looking for ways to make decisions that were smart. Does that make yeah. sense? No, it makes sense. And it's also one of the things that is a point of contention and confusion. I remember when the first data about millennials started to come out, it was lazy, entitled, you know, you don't want to do the work. And what do you think? This is not what we did. You have to, you have to essentially put in your time. And I remember obviously receiving that piece of information and wondering how they got that <laughs> because it, it, it was, I don't think it, it was necessarily the fact that a whole generation is lazy and entitled. I, it just seemed like my generation asked a lot more questions and demanded to mm -hmm. control more of their, you know, lives or careers and even, even with flexibility. And that obviously is a reflection of what's happening in the time. We have the digital age, we have, you know, facts that our pa parents and grandparents told us that you could do what you, you, whatever you wanted to do, or we have more entrepreneurial uh, lean-in tendencies. So it's always interesting for me when you receive a piece of information and you're told to grow up a certain way and then you get into workplace and you said, that's not what you should do. So I, I was just very curious to see what your thoughts were on that. I, I think you nailed it. Uh, that's a great description. Um, my thoughts are that, that instead of making statements, I think we do best when we ask questions, particularly uh, yes. great questions and ones that begin with what, like what would it look like or how, how can, how can you get there? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. So then how do we then practice this form of leadership and then make sure that we cultivate better sales and higher morale? The short answer is write it down and share it with smart people. Okay. It doesn't need to be an elaborate customized software program. There are about a dozen uh, OKR customized software vendors, and I could recommend some. But the, the short answer is if you were to write down your objectives for 2020 and, and your KRs, your measures, say, on a quarterly basis, and if you were to share those with a handful of accountability partners, like six people, it could be that that's all you need to do, and it will drive your um, success ahead. We know in psychology that uh, clear intention is the biggest predictor of, of professional success. If you have a fuzzy future, that's what you'll get. If you've got a pessimistic future, that's what you'll get. However, if you choose hope, efficacy, resiliency, or optimism, this is the hero mantra, H-E-R-O, then that's called psychological capital. Those are the four biggest variables. Well, those are things that you can practice, I can practice, and your listeners can practice. Are you familiar with PSYCAP? No, no, please educate me. 
This is one of those things that uh, a bunch of academics know and a bunch of practitioners do not know. <laughs> well, I, I fall into that category, I guess. <laughs> well, you're, you're very normal. How's that? We'll start with that um, belief. <laughs> uh, when I commonly introduce this, I'll, I'll ask, uh, you know, are you wealthy? And I'm trying to provoke people. And if you think of wealth, we typically answer in three ways. But I'll suggest there's four ways. So one is... Sure, financial capital. You know your net worth, your assets and such. The second is social capital. You know how many, how many people and the quality and quantity of your relationships is a measure of your social capital. So that makes you wealthy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the third is human capital or knowledge, your knowledge, skills, and abilities. Well, the problem with all three of those is that they're finite. You're going to learn them and then uh, they're finite-based resources. You're going to forget who you know. You're going to lose all your assets in the last 10 years of your life. Sorry, so am I. And then we're going to forget not only who we know, but what we know. So in contrast, psychological capital is infinite. It's coachable. It's trainable. It's positive. And it's something that uh, is a dynamic effect. It's called a second order effect. So let me repeat the H-E-R-O uh, mantra. This is nothing that Doug invented. It's something that I've validated globally, but I've also applied in a lot of my training. You ready? Yes. So the H is hope, the will and the way. We've got uh, generalized beliefs that we can, we hope to cure cancer, for instance. Well, that implies that we know both how to do it, we've got the will and the way. We're not there yet. Efficacy, but we aspire to be. Uh, our churches and our families are really good at providing hope. I think better than our employers and our institutions, which is some reasons, more reasons why millennials are disenchanted sometimes. Boomers are too, but that's a different topic. You didn't ask me about that. No. <laughs> <We're under>. I... <laughs> and the E stands for efficacy, which is a nerdy way of saying your capacity to do your job. Efficacy. Are you effective? Are you capable of running a podcast and sharing your wisdom with thousands of people? The R is resilience. And we know this to be dynamic. Uh, a bunch of positive psychologists have provided this content for free to members of the American military because we know that when people come back from active duty, they and their stakeholders and their loved ones all need to be able to respond to the previous level or higher. That's called resilience. And the O stands for optimism, which is a choice. By definition, optimism just means a generalized positive affect. My hunch is that you're more optimistic than you are pessimistic, right? You choose that, a positive affect. That's yeah. true. Well, in psychology, we know that that's a choice and optimism is dynamic. And these four things together are called psychological capital. There's a second order effect. If, if you, for instance, Teo, are higher in hope and optimism, you're going to deal with career transition better than somebody who's not. I just got off a call with a regional VP who's in his 50s and he's struggling with his next phase in life, which is probably retirement, but maybe a reassignment because he's trying to figure out what am I hopeful about? What am I optimistic about? How can I be resilient and spend time with my family and, and such? And how am I gonna be efficacious in, in the next career of my life? I think we're all in transition. So I talked for a long time, but that's what PSYCAP is, psychological capital, and the H-E-R-O uh, acronym is one way to re remember it. Does it make no, sense? No, no, it makes a lot of sense, and I love that you said that. And I find that a lot of these, uh, you know, forms of metrics or leadership or even trying to get employee engagement up, they all have to do with not 
just your mindset, but you have to create and cultivate this culture of positivity and um, and, and and leadership that can be contagious, if that makes any sense. And so uh, negativity is contagious, so is positivity. And so whichever way that you're trying to impact an employee culture, it, it starts with the leadership, but you have to then live it out so that people can see it, model it, and then say, oh, that's who we are. And I'm going to do that. And and I, I think a lot of times people forget that what's being reflected as a leader is being modeled by uh, people in, in entry-level positions as well as middle management, whether it's, it's conscious or subconscious. And it's, it's interesting when you say that model, because I, I just keep thinking about companies that I work with and I keep and then every time I do, you know, the needs analysis, it's it always comes down to, well, a CEO doesn't seem interested or mid-imagine never so I, I could get there. Oh, I don't see myself in those positions. I've never seen anyone that looks like me or no one's ever brought someone up here that reflects the values that I have. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, th- that's an argument for making sure that you hire people who don't look like you. Yes. And work with people who don't look like you. And that you begin to think of leaders not as roles or um, people who happen to be chronologically older and think that they're smarter and are certainly better paid. But maybe that leader is the newest employee who's off in the corner and, you know, she has red hair and a lot of tattoos and, and, and doesn't look like everybody else in the organization. Leadership yeah. is something that I think is not at all associated with the role in the way that I just described, but it's much more or better defined by those who are able to influence the behavior of others. And the core skill there is public optimism. So if, if that person's in the front of the room and they're sharing how to do something, they are leading others in ways that may be critically important to that group. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And this is one of the reasons I love the book because you're, you're not only talking about the, you know, okay, our objectives plus key results, you're applying that to leadership, right? And you call it this, the secret sauce, in your opinion, why, what Silicon Valley companies do this very well? Uh, it, I think the best answer for that is to refer anybody to a book called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Okay. He, he tells that story really well, and he uses about a dozen examples from Silicon Valley. He cites the Intel roots, and, and Andy Grove is the father of OKRs. And Dor was the guy who um, was schooled by Andy Grove and then went to Google as uh, an early investor. And he said, you know, you really ought to consider using this as a decision-making process. And now at Google, OKRs are, are integrated into all aspects of uh, management and leadership. So Google's probably the one of the most famous examples of a Silicon Valley company. Mm-hmm. But Frankly, there are thousands, and they're not based in Silicon Valley, which is the reason for writing this book. And they're not technology companies, and they're not big organizations. So you, for instance, can apply OKRs uh, to your career or to your family or to 2020, for instance. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's what happens with New Year's resolutions. Everybody is always thinking... We have to have a new year, new me, but with 2020, it's it's a new decade as well. So they're thinking of right. what's the next 10 years going to be in my in my life. Um, but what's the metaphor about eyesight, right? Do you have 2020 insight or vision or future or clarity? <laughs> no, who does? We do. 
know, yeah, I know. There, there's so many puns that come with that. This yeah. is the, the time you're going to see. You don't need your glasses anymore. Take it, take it <laughs> off. <laughs> your metaphorical glasses. Uh, okay, so so then, okay, let's let's stay on the leadership then here. What about those bridges between HR and operations? Because you have the corporate regional office, and yep. then you have many departments, right? Yep. So. How are you translating all these things? How are you creating all these bridges? How do you make sure it's translatable? It's uh, and it's something that actually uh, gets people from different departments to act on simultaneously. You know, my answer goes back to the opening statement I shared with you. It's as simple as anybody saying, "Here are my objectives, and here are my three KRs." And and it could be that you've got only three, could be four, and you're going to share them with others in in your world. And it could be that you do so um, in an email with an Excel spreadsheet, or it could be like one of my clients, um, <laughs> you'd like this image maybe. So imagine uh, a company that has 60% um, of the market in auto salvage. I don't have their permission to mention them but by name, but anybody can look them up. And they're a Fortune 500 company. Right. So I've done 10 or more programs with their senior leadership team on OKRs uh, and RVPs, regional VPs and such. And I've gone to a lot of their locations, and I've shared a lot of the OKR content. So one of these uh, attendees was at a keynote that I gave in Denver, and he came up to me. He's the only one of 700 people who came up to me. And he said, I want to do this. And I said, great, let's go. And virtually, we've uh, communicated occasionally, and he's taken the content, and he's created OKRs for his people in, I think it's Nebraska, so that he's got 80 or 100 people in his plant that group can articulate what their OKRs are. They post them on a sheet of paper that's two feet by three feet, and they put it in the lobby. And he could then take little videos and distribute them to other people. Well, this, this uh, has been so well received that he invited the lieutenant governor in to do a, a walkthrough <laughs> for the state. And that person brought in the TV reporters and all the rest, and they took videos of this. And then a vendor came in and he said, wait a minute, one of your OKRs is to reduce your inventory costs? Huh, I can help with that. So now the vendor sees it posted and the vendor is able to reduce the inventory by delivering, say, twice, as, twice a month instead of once a month. So now he's reducing his inventory costs, he's meeting the objective, and he's partnering better with his vendors. So there's an example at a local level. But that guy's part of the company, which is global. Uh, most of my work has been national. And they've got 10,000 employees. So when he shares that story, I can include him virtually in a 20-minute vignette in a training program. So if I'm in Toronto and I'm doing a training, I can include his story in that example. And the folks throughout Canada or Eastern Canada can implement some of his OKRs. This is an example of using the technology to build bridges in ways that we couldn't have done 20 years ago. Make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Listen to you, it sounds like, you know, a key factor of OKR leadership is basically helping managers uh, and employees realize that they are leaders. Uh, right. And, and you know, I, I remember there was a portion, I think it was in your press release, where you said many people aspire to be leaders, but uh -huh. they think themselves as leaders in the distant future. But yeah. you, you are saying that you need, you know, uh, your method, the OKR leadership is basically helping them realize that you are already leaders. <laughs> and, and, and that's an effective way of basically influencing behavior. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, one way to uh, give you an example is uh, this is the Christmas book buying season. So a lot of people will go into your favorite bookstore. How many books on management are there? Maybe one shelf. How many books on leadership are there? Maybe 10 shelves. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody is. Yeah, no, that's true. Right. We all aspire to be leaders. We don't aspire to be managers. Yes. But when I ask my audience is how many of you are managers, you know, 60 or 70 percent will raise their hands because mm -hmm. it's a job description. It's a title. Then mm -hmm. I ask how many of you are leaders? And they sit on their hands, tail. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, because they're probably thinking of the traditional definition or not yet or how many people do I have? And, and it's so funny because if you think about it. We are leaders in many aspects of our lives. You're an older brother, older sibling, your parent, your mentor, your yep. anything uh, that someone is looking up to. But we sometimes define leadership in this traditional CEO uh, role where we think that that means if you don't have a company, you're not an entrepreneur, you're not. Huh. So interesting. Flip it around. I work with a lot of senior leaders. One of the measures that I ask them is, so uh, anybody who's a director and above, a VP, a, a senior C-suite leader, how many leaders have you developed in your career? And it oh. gets quiet. Wow. I think we're in the business, frankly, and in the leadership development business, I think we're in the business of cultivating leaders. Yeah. Just building yeah. leaders, whatever verb you like. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I always say that I want to help develop the next set of global leaders. Oh. Yeah. yeah. No, just because, well, so for me, my, my thing is helping people and organizations connect effectively across cultures because I've, I found that to be the core skill needed in leadership in today's world. Mm -hmm. And so as, I, as I'm thinking about the digitalization of the world and the globalization of the world, this idea of how to navigate a polarized environment or a very divisive environment or environment that's it's dictated by maybe cancel culture or any sort of thing, it's very interesting and, and necessary to understand Hey, how to deal with the nuance and 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 all those and all those uh, core concepts of uh, basically leading. So yeah, I identified it as cross-cultural connection communication. And I think that's the challenge of the next decade. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's assume that anybody listening to this is capable of building bridges, building relationships in significant, profound, deep ways. I'm assuming I'm making that assumption in my head. <laughs> well, that's that's your bias, right? That's your preference. Yeah. That's your yeah. choice. But not everybody has that belief. You know that. Yeah. And it to all kinds of projections and, and labeling about uh, whatever it is that this friendly guy named Tail. I've never met you. I've never shaken your hands. I don't know what you look like, really. <laughs> what, are, what are that person's beliefs? Well, what if we did a better job of asking questions? And then asked, you know, what do we agree on? What do we share? How can we serve this common interest or goal? Then it becomes life-changing, right? Now we're all leading. And then it's yeah. individual, at team level, and organizational level. Yeah. And, and for me, it comes down to truly committed to seeing people the way they are, of seeing, hearing, and understanding them. Because I think a lot of times, even when you think about diversity and inclusion, I always say it's about connecting the visible to the invisible. But a lot of people, everyone in the world, wants to be seen, heard, and understood for who they really are. And we have all these biases, like you pointed out, yeah. but we have also all these frames and cultural cultural frames of reference that we use to sometimes make decisions on people where we actually erase a huge part of their identities. You know, when you talked about the millennials, a huge part of 
their identities is that agency part. And so if you confuse agency for laziness or or entitlement, it's a very subtle difference, but you're going to approach the leadership of them in a very different way. <laughs> so, um, Right, because laziness yeah. is a negative bias that's projected exactly. upon somebody implies that they're less capable. So I use yeah. words like schema. What's your mental map or schema? And then I ask, how could this person's behavior be uh, a window or a door? Yeah. yeah. Because we look through windows, we walk through doors, and both are behavioral changes. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Right? Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness! This is so good. See, I know why you're so good at your job, Doug. This is this is incredible because it's it, there are very few people. There are many people to do a lot of the the work that we, we were talking about. What you do, but there are very few people that know how to communicate it in a language that's digestible. Because it's one of these fields where people are saying, "Ah, this is just a bunch of keywords." But your ability to make it translatable and digestible is such a unique skill that, I, I mean, I hope you recognize that because that, that's incredible. Really well, good. let me tell you where the source is then. Uh, the windows and doors and the schema stuff, that comes from reading literature. And ah. years ago, uh, I was an English teacher for 10 years. And uh, I had the opportunity to go to Oxford. And I sat in Alice in Wonderland's little uh, garden at yeah. Oxford. And uh, was part of a program where we studied English literature and poetry. And one of the professors there uh, made the point that when cameras were invented, the fellow who wrote Alice in Wonderland was fascinated by cameras. And he was a mathematician by training, but he had this lovely niece that he wanted to share a story with. So everything in Alice in Wonderland is about big doors and little doors and getting big and getting small. In other words, taking on other perspectives, right? Yes. Yeah. In huh. literature, those are called liminal zones and in psychology they're called mental maps or schemas and the same word that makes it easy for people is uh, a window that you see through or a door that you walk through yes how's that that uh, well first of all i understand why literature was your your, your thing yeah. <laughs> especially with you using analogies um and that's also another writer but yes that makes sense huh okay well let's let's stay on let's stay on this here so since you're you're making it translatable here, and you're talking about how you got to that point uh, with schema. I want to then think about how we can talk about regional, national businesses, and then move to family businesses and succession plans. So, is it is is what you're saying translatable to that? Absolutely. You probably know that seventy percent of American businesses are 
family owned. They're smaller businesses. So the mm-hmm. example I used earlier really doesn't resonate with, with a lot of the audience that you've probably got in your podcast world. Yeah. Most family owned businesses uh, are either shorter term or the founder, G1 it's called. Um, and it could be a, a male and a female. It could be um, a single person who, with the support of somebody else, has, has founded the company. G1 always worries about G2, Generation 2. Mm, wow. It's a, they lose sleep over it. It's a common thing. And the reason, I think, is you might hope that your child is capable and qualified to take on that business. And it doesn't matter whether it's a farm in Minnesota or a, a high, fine jewelry company in, in Alabama. The point is that those leaders, the G1 leaders, need to know what are their objectives and what are their carriers? How do they define for succession planning needs? Because frankly, they're confused. Yeah. So they need often external consultants like myself to help them articulate what's important and how do you want to get there? Notice I just used the words, what's important and how do you want to get there? Yeah. Instead of objectives and key results. <laughs> the same word. So, the, so it's all about, that's the thing I'm noticing with what you're saying. It, it's, it's framing, reframing, and speaking the language of the audience that you're referring to. So you say, well, what's important? How do you want to get there? And uh, if I can see how if you say that as opposed to objectives and KRs, it would get a different you know response. So it might turn them off, right? That's yeah. Minnesota doesn't need those fancy words. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, but, but that you're hitting on, you're hitting a nail on the head. I mean, we're, we're guess, we're, I mean, we're in election season, right? So yeah. what, what is going to ref, uh, resonate with certain people would be how you communicate to them. Yes. And, and whether you talk down <laughs> to them or you talk at them or you talk to them and, and it's, it's figuring out that, that nuance. And, you know, obviously there's the pre, you know, disposition that, Hey, you, you know, you are a uh, politician, so you're already a liar. So I, I'm already having that bias. But sometimes people like the idea of someone, hey, I need, uh, I need to really listen to this person. This person really gets me. And this person said it in the way that I would say it. So that's, that's fascinating to, to, to see that. It actually, it's something that we need to remind ourselves of every single day. And even with your kid. You know, as a teacher, I'm sure when you were talking to teaching about his high school and middle schoolers, it, the, the, the students probably resonated better with people that felt like they were talking to them and not the person that just picked up the, the, the saw on the, on the news that this is the new dance and came to try and do the new dance there without actually understanding the students. It's, it's very, very um, inauthentic when you approach leadership that way. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between lectures, which is how I was taught as a child, and case studies, which is how graduate school is taught now. Yeah. So huh. if you've got a case study at, at Harvard or wherever, um, I went to Dartmouth, so I'm... Doug, I'm so sorry, Doug. <laughs> yeah. The point is that uh, a bunch of us were sitting around a, a table, a discussion table, after a presentation, and it was that lively conversation, that interaction, that forced us to process the, the speaker's message. So the lecture is limited. It's the business application of the case study that everybody needs. For instance, family business leaders need to learn from other family business leaders because they tend to think, ah, I'm alone. Nobody else gets me or gets this fear I've got about bringing in a non-family member as a director. Ah, how do I learn that? 
You know, no, it's good though. I, I really want to talk about that because there is this idea of Ivy League, right? And other schools. Yeah, I shouldn't have mentioned that. Sorry. No, 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 no. I want to talk about it because I love it. And, and, and it's a good point here. The reason the separation that Ivy League schools get from other schools is beyond the case study things is you no, know, what you're saying. It's um, they built a reputation based on how they've developed leaders. Essentially, what you're saying. You know, we talked about you said you ask a question to, to people how, how many leaders have you developed? Yeah. How many leaders of Ivy League schools developed versus other schools? Now it doesn't. This is. I'm, we're not talking about scores here. I'm talking about the mindset and all that. And, and I, I think it's a fascinating study to to actually reflect on. Uh, you know, because other people they they drop. Sometimes they drop out. It doesn't matter if they graduate, but it's the fact that a lot of X amount of leaders came from this school and that they built a reputation. Blah 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 blah. Then it, it adds on to yeah the the reputation. It does, I guess, but um, it's probably you know it's a question of social impact. It's probably numerically more likely that the public state-funded schools are more impactful. I also went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, and that's a bigger place. Mm. Consequently, there would probably be more impact from leaders who graduated from those schools. And the third example is I went to um, do my doctoral work online because I live in Nashville. There's not a great uh, doctoral program for uh, my interest in organizational leadership. So that meant that I was interacting with folks that I never knew what they looked like uh, digitally, and, and we were all communicating and writing. That's it. We never had synchronous classes. We never had uh, conversation in the way that you and I are having right now. Well, yeah. what that requires, I think, is empathy and slowing down and listening and trying to understand, wow, why did this person write that idea in that way? Yeah. Huh. I never really know that answer. So then I'll question them. So now we've got a discourse. And it's it's a digital, it's written, you know, written discourse, but it leads to a better understanding of what they think about organizational leadership, for instance. Yeah. Makes sense? That makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, then one of the things that people have always thought about organization leadership is the fact that uh, we need employee engagement scores and employee engagement, uh, you know, uh, to essentially be a way to reflect that we are doing well as a company. I don't think you agree with that. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's just a hunch i might not have done any research i just maybe it's just a hunch I have. <laughs> yeah um so a little story might help i i spend a lot of time with a bunch of safety people at new nuclear power construction plants in virginia and north and south carolina and stuff and these are people who uh wear the white hats and they walk around a plant with five thousand employees and other people have their steel-toed boots and their blue hat and their red hat or whatever contracting company they come from well, um, they've made the point that there are leading indicators and lagging indicators in safety. I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. Right. But, but the point uh, works here. In, in engagement scores, there are leading indicators that increase or decrease in, in employee engagement. Classic one is the capacity to work from home. Knowledge workers prefer to work from home. That reduces the commuting time. They're able to be more effective. They're able to uh, solve problems collaboratively using the tools that you and I are using right now. And they're probably going to have higher employee engagement scores than those who are forced to commute during the ugly dark times of day to a place that's uh, confined by cubicles or constraints from managers or work productivity measures. 
in ways that don't enable them to uh, feel good about their job. Yeah. So the question becomes, what's a leading indicator here and, and what's the lagging? So the, the lagging indicator is uh, an employee engagement score. Another example would be, what's your blood pressure right now? That's a lagging indicator. And the contributors to your blood pressure include your sleep and your diet and your exercise, right? So why do we focus so much on the lagging indicators of employee engagement scores as if they're the key? Hmm. What if we focused instead on the leading indicators? Like, to what extent are people able to contribute to collaborative problem solving? This is the reason why many millennials enjoy Slack as a collaborative problem solving tool. It's a way to digitally engage with other people asynchronously. Kind of like I just described with my doctoral work at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. The point is we're able to collaborate using these tools and improve our uh, contributions to solving the problems. Well, yeah. that's a leading uh, descriptor of employee engagement. Well, I, I mean, I keep saying it, Dr. Grant. I really like how you explain these things because it's, it's a way to remind people of the core principles. I, I think with any... Any century, 18th, 17th, 19th, 20th, 21st, the core principles of leadership have been similar. They've come up with new terms and terminologies, and it's also been impacted by the times or, you know, what a technology of the day. But remembering that, understanding the influence in, of people and, and getting people to honestly track accountability and improve transparency is key. You know, it's just something we need to remind ourselves of, you know, when when you have less transparency and there's less accountability there, we put ourselves into holes, honestly. We can. And um, and and there are also historically important cultural differences that happen in those centuries you just mentioned. Yes. The European Renaissance was defined by uh, church dominance and limited access to um written material or knowledge, information. People didn't share language. They didn't share currencies. They weren't enabled to travel or uh, discuss ideas. One of the um, notions is that Asian cultures are much better at modeling balance and harmony because not only do they commonly honor their elders, but they listen well. So I think their chronological differences and geographic and cultural differences that are really important for us to honor. People talk about this connection economy that we're in right now yeah, as if it's new. I just think it's broader. Hmm. The farm that was in Italy that built all those wineries <laughs> <laughs> I had a fair amount of accountability and transparency, I think. Uh, really? Yeah, probably. I met a fellow recently who was a 16th generation vineyard uh in italy amazing fellow and their family uh this is back to the family generation work their family decided that they had too many stakeholders it was too diffused they had too much partisan interest so they had to after 16 generations they had to sell their shares they sold their ownership so there's an example where their objectives were not clearly defined any longer and too many different people i think they had 400 shareholders a different divergent key results, and the, the results were, were chaotic. 
Well, I think it's a breakdown of the communication that they probably had 13 generations ago. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. That's true. You know, I, I, yeah, communication is 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 key regardless. Uh, and I, I like the fact that you brought that the cultural differences. And one of the cultural differences that we've had now is uh, the fact that voices in, in marginalized communities are, have more of a voice this century, this generation, than they have had in previous generations but also more agency of their platforms. And where I come into play is, is explain to people that it doesn't, it's not a, you know, you know, something that, that it's going to take opportunity away from other people. But then we get into this conversation where we're talking about morality here, where people feel like if you want to get into politics or all this, people feel like you're taking away from what's been historically mine, or this is not fair, or this is, you know, an affirmative action, or this isn't real leadership. And I'm thinking about all these things and cultural differences with new generations and new communication tools, sometimes by some part of the population is seen as a threat. And I, if I think about what you're saying with millennial leadership, if we have that negative bias or negative mindset and a misunderstanding of the fact that this is going to be the most diverse generation and it's going to continue to be that way, we're actually going to be worse leaders because we're not going to actually understand that the people that we are going to lead in the younger generation is going to see the world very differently than maybe your grandfather did or you did or your father did. So I, I just think it's something to point out uh, because um, you brought up cultural differences there, but it, it's also another way to lead just because you need to you need to understand the nuances of the people that you are trying to be a leader of. And that's probably impossible. <laughs> oh, whoa. Okay, well, tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I have never met. I don't know anything about your cultural background, your social network, or your expectations for um, great leaders. Yeah. yeah. We're infinitely complex as a species. And there's, what, 7 billion of us? So if, five, yeah. if I were to uh, imagine what makes for good leadership or bad leadership, it's not as simple, I don't think, as saying, here's, here's the five steps to great leadership. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, that's a fact. That's a fact. So it's more subjective than ever. Yeah. You, uh, for instance, have your notion of how to be a great leader that's yeah. different than mine, I imagine. And, and that's... Uh, subjectively validated in social media in other ways that it was never validated in the past. For instance, women didn't have a voice just a generation ago in this country. Homosexuals throughout the world have not had a voice. Mm. Folks in the Arab Spring uh, Revolution yes. never had a voice. Today, yeah. I up uh, Time Magazine, the person of the year is a 16-year-old girl named Greta. Well, where'd yeah. she come from, right? Who are Greta's parents? Where's oh, the... I love Greta, Greta Thunberg. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, point. yeah, Greta. She's a leader, I think, yeah. who's revered in some ways, but probably hated in other ways. I'd suggest she's infinitely complex. I don't know this person. I don't know what she has been able to say or how she's been able to get her message out. But that's another example of people sharing their voices in ways that they never had the capacity to, to do before. I think Greta is an interesting case study. I've, I've, I've been following her career. Uh, and and you. you're, yeah, yeah. And she's this, uh, so she, she started off, she's Swedish, 
She's also on the on the on the uh, on the spectrum. I believe she has Asperger's. But her thing is making sure that uh, uh, people stop ruining the environment. And she started off sitting out of school as a means of protest uh, to basically remind leaders to stop polluting the world. Uh, and and it started to take on, uh, and it became this movement where people started to do the same things. And she started to get invited to speak on these things. And her, some of her speeches, if you look at it, were her calling leaders out in Davos or in all these all these prominent areas. And she has this deadpan face, which in our generation has become memeable. <laughs> it's uh-huh. a meme. It's all these things. And they love the fact that this um, 16, I think she was 15 at the time, was the 16-year-old is calling people out and is is being uh consistent with that and you know yes it's led to her instead of taking uh reducing her carbon footprint instead of taking a plane she would take a boat from europe to new york to come to the un or or to come to stuff like that and so she does all these things where she's living it out and yes it has led to some polarizing things uh current president of the united states has basically insulted her multiple times on twitter (laughs) um which is a very interesting conversation in and of itself and that's led to people saying, are you really going to go at a teenager right now? And so back and forth. But yes, it is polarizing. But it's like our generation, we're very values based and we think about things that are important to us. And an environment is something that's important to us. And she's saying, you're all going to die. And my kids and my generation are the ones that are going to suffer for this. That's basically what she said. And so that's the summary of it. Voice that um, is more effective today, for instance, than than Al Gore's political campaign was what twenty years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just reminded me of that. Wow, yeah, that's true. Yeah, inconvenient. Is it inconvenient truth or what was it? The inconvenient. Yep. I can't remember. Yeah. What it was. yeah. Uh, ah, yeah, it's interesting. And even with the, our generation younger, you, YouTube and all the influencers, you know, the celebrities of our time, and even people younger than me, and I have two younger brothers. They see influencers in a very different way you know you, you, some of these youtube stars are the ones that have the most influence and so it's very important to know that you know leadership is very different but it's interesting okay it, it is um and it's also ancient marie antoinette comes to mind when i think about a social revolution in france when i think about um people who were influential in in time weren't always fully aware of the facts so today there's a lot of question about what's objectively true. Is there anything any longer called objective truth? And the philosophers will say, of course, there is. There's always a shadow on the cave wall if you go back to that philosophical argument. And we need to get at the truth about leadership, for instance, or about management, for instance, or about our futures. And then others will swing the other side of the pendulum and they'll say, you know, it's all subjective. My truth is unknowable and, and undescribable to anybody else. So I'll try to influence as many people as I can. Look at the number of followers I have. <laughs> yeah, that that's so true. You could you hit the nail on the head. And it, it has its own um, negative connotation with that because then it becomes more about getting the followers as opposed to the impact. Depending on, I think we just have to remind ourselves of that, of what we're doing here. Um, so let's okay. bring it back to OKRs. Um, in, in the OKR world, if you're in a larger organization and your objectives are well known, for instance, at, at Google, if uh, you want to have a, a meeting with the CEO and his OKRs are not um, consistent with yours, you will not impose a 30-minute meeting on the guy. Why would you? It'd be wrong to impose your OKRs on that person because the business needs define X. 
Same mm. story with a family. If the if the generation two leaders are looking at succession planning for generation three or four, and generation two wants X to happen by a certain date so they can have enough assets maybe to transfer to generations three and four. Gotcha. You have to be really clear about those. Well, that's a, a objective truth in time. It might change. But one of the values of OKRs is to state, here's where we are today. Here's where we need to go next. Huh? Well, where we need to go next is to get your book. So where can we get your book? All over. <laughs> so it's at Amazon and uh, iBooks and all those platforms. Um, and thanks for the endorsement. Objectives and key results um, is a phrase that's being used, but nobody is using the phrase OKR leadership. So that's why I adopted this for this book. It's the first book of its kind that applies leadership at all the levels that we've been discussing, uh, individual, team, and career. Uh, I'm sorry, organizational. And I, I wrote a couple chapters uh, after describing what OKRs are. I wrote a couple chapters with a bunch of stories about how people can apply these in their career. My bias, uh, we talked about biases, is that you and I are perpetually in transition, that as a species, we're in transition. We adapt to new environments. Well, there are a bunch of folks in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s described in, in this book. It might be useful for folks who are in career transition. And it might also, there's a chapter on um, trends and technology and where we're headed that yeah. relate to the psychological capital. And there's a chapter also on family-owned businesses because I think they're desperate for examples of how do we make smarter decisions as a family. Yeah. No, that's good. No, I, I've definitely put this in the show notes. I Once again, audience, listeners, everyone, you know, I'm not, I don't just endorse books, I, you know, that I, I don't, you know, read or believe in. It's, these things are translatable, regardless of where you are, what stage you are. You're a manager, you're a middle level, employee, entry level, entrepreneur, parent, brother, you know, historian, <laughs> or, uh, 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 you know, um, just anyone that's looking to make an impact in the world. I think it's always important to remember your objectives and the key results. And that happens with simply setting goals, one, but also with leading people and teams. So that's the measure right. of success right there. Absolutely. Yeah. There's uh, other information at okrleadership.com, which has some testimonials and a white paper people can download and also at action-learning.com if people want it. Absolutely. And I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. Before we go, though, I, I always ask my guests uh, a final question, and it's my mission statement reframed as a question. So, Doug, how do you use your difference to make a difference? I try hard every day. I think um, persistence matters. Mm -hmm. I I also ask my clients at the end of every call, what are you taking away from this conversation that you're going to do next? Stop, tail. What are you taking away from this conversation that you're going to do next? What I'm taking away is to remember the key basics and remember that if you're not influencing people, uh, you're not doing much in terms of leadership. And so that's what I'm doing. Perfect. I have two, young, <laughs> two younger brothers, and I have to remember that leadership is not just this... Uh, I guess, conventional definition that we've defined, we've assigned to it. So, yes. They're beautifully complex, those brothers, and mysterious. And you're probably going to explain it. Yes, they are. They are. But um, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a very pleasant conversation. I really appreciate it. Really. Thanks so much. 
pleasure is mine. And till next time, ladies, gentlemen, and gender non-binary individuals, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.